from The Advocate magazine in partnership with Vlad. This is LGBTQ and A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today, as part of our Elders Project, we're sharing a love story, one that begins in the 1970s. At that time, Ruthie Berman was in her 40s when she suddenly realized that she was thoroughly, manly, profoundly in love with her best friend, Connie Kurtz. It was all-encompassing. There were butterflies, fireworks, every delightful cliché. There was just that one small issue of them already being married and having husbands and homophobia in their small Jewish community and of course homophobia in the world in general. But besides all of that, they were in love and they were in it together. You're gonna hear Ruthie tell that story. You're gonna hear her talk about how much has and hasn't changed for our community since she came out 50 years ago. And you're also gonna hear her explain how and why she and Connie became activists. In 1988, they even sued the New York City Board of Education to allow domestic partners the ability to access their partner's health insurance and other benefits. This suit was successful, and these domestic partner benefits, it applied to all New York City employees. It was a huge victory, as you'll hear, so let's get to it. Without further ado, this is the 87, almost 88-year-old Ruthie Berman. So going back to the 1970s, you and your wife, Connie, you were originally friends and part of the same Jewish community in Brooklyn, and then that changed. What was the moment when you realized that you wanted to be more than just friends? Well, we were very good friends. We babysat, we exchanged babysitting, we did a lot of political stuff, a lot of stuff for the community where we live in Contello Towers, schools. And Connie and her husband decided to move to Israel. It was a difficult goodbye, but we managed and we got together. And I visited her with my family for my son's bat mitzvah, et cetera, et cetera. And then she came in for a visit, she and her husband. We spent a lot of time. I said to myself, that's my best friend. I'm going to spend all the time I can with her. And then one day I was walking and we had been together and talked. We always had so much to talk about. And I was coming home from work and I suddenly felt a falling in love experience that I hadn't experienced and it was for Connie. And that week she stayed with me and my family. And one night we went to a show. It wasn't on Broadway yet. It was off Broadway. And one of the scenes was a lesbian in a red gown singing. And I felt something. Do you remember the name of the show? I'm not sure. Long while ago. And something happened to me. And that night I got dressed in a red dress and I asked Connie to kiss me. And that was the, the beginning of our relationship. And so you made the first move. Yes, which was very wild. Why was it wild? Because I had no idea that I could feel this way. I, it was I had a, a wonderful marriage, a wonderful family, a wonderful career. Everything was falling into place in a very positive way. And all of a sudden, I'm in love with a woman. And so this kiss wasn't just a platonic like peck. This was a big romantic kiss. Yes. In fact, I said to her afterwards, can't you do better than that? 
I was in another world. I was in another space in the way I was behaving. It was totally, totally different than, than anything I had experienced in the way I was behaving. I couldn't even think about it until it reached a point where I went to visit her in Israel for my birthday. And we went away for two weeks together and just made love, brought the relationship to a really wonderful place. You have to remember, we already had a friendship. We were now having a love affair. And so was this all Connie focused, like all I'm in love with this woman? Or was it also I'm in love with this woman and like, oh my God, I'm gay? I didn't even think about being gay until we got together. And I had to make a decision of divorce. At that time, the lawyer that we got happened to be a lesbian lawyer. And she said, you have to be very careful what you're going to do. You'll lose custody of your children. And my late ex-husband was was in such a place of shock and sadness that he didn't give me any room except the judge gave me the room to see my children. I decided to leave because the community was gossiping terribly. We lived in the community together for many years. We were very, very so-called famous and active and did a great deal there, helped build a school, all kinds of things. So this was the gossip. My mother lived there. It was very difficult for her because as soon as she walked out and they saw her, you know, talking, 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 it was not easy. I think what amazes me is that you were both on the same page, like right away. My fear would be that I was going to leave my husband, tell my kids, you know, blow up my entire life. And then this woman would say, like, I'm sorry, I can't leave my husband. It didn't work that way. I was the initiator and I was the difficult one in separating. Difficult how? A total craziness knowing the difficulty that we would have because it wasn't a man and a woman. It was two women. I was totally in the closet, fearfully in the closet. It was my secret. My children asked me, are you sleeping together? And I said, no. I lied through the whole thing. My mother, when she found out I was separating from my husband, who she loved, she said, are you doing this because you're going to have a better life? I couldn't even answer her. She didn't accept Connie, although she was very close to Connie as my friend. But once this happened, Connie could not visit her because she was also close to my husband who lived three flights down. It was very hard for her until my mother was physically handicapped. I'm saying this quickly. My father died when I was 10. She had to get high school equivalency, finally got a job. We were on welfare, da -da 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 -da. difficult time. She had polio, severely handicapped. She never shared when she didn't feel well. But one day she did, and I knew, uh-uh, this is trouble. Sure enough, she had the type of cancer that if she didn't have an operation, she could die as if a 10-ton truck hit her. So the day of the operation, all my relatives were there, my kids were there, and the nurse says, you have to leave because I got to prepare her. You're going to tell me I have to leave. I may never see my mother again. So the nurse left. I went to, with my mother and we said how we loved each other. What a wonderful life we had together. Blah, 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 blah. Then she says to me, and she was hard of hearing and didn't have her hearing aid. She said, I want you to forgive me. Forgive me? What could you forgive me? And she keeps saying it. And then she says, I want you to forgive me. 
for what I did to you and Connie for seven years, not accepting you, she said, and I want to see Connie. She saw Connie alone. She did the same thing with Connie to forgive her for what she did. Hadn't my mother done that, it would have hung over my head. And I don't know if I don't know if I would have had the freedom as I do today to tell everybody, even even the the supermarket cashier that I'm a lesbian. And that was after you had been with Connie for about seven years. Yes. More. And were the two of you living in more or less secret until then? Not with Connie. Connie told everybody I kept it a secret. (laughs) Everybody knew. (laughs) And then we started the lawsuit. Well, the lawsuit for everybody, just to explain it, this was 1988, and you sued the city of New York. Can you explain that for everybody? What happened was I was very conscious that Connie did not have a health plan. So I got her a health plan with a Jewish organization, but it wasn't good. And she needed one because she had health issues. And so I decided after hearing that my colleagues had their wives on and their husbands on, I said, I wanted Connie on my health plan. So I went to the clerk. One clerk said, no, I can't give you an application. You're not married. I had changed schools. The clerk was right next to me, the school clerk. She gives me the application and I I write Connie's name, and Connie looked like a man's name, right? I want her on my health plan. The day that I get from my clerk, she hands me a piece of paper, back from the Board of Education, et cetera, verboten, you're not married. Her phone rings. It's for me. It's Lambda Legal Defense. Would we join the lawsuit for domestic partnership? with the New York City teachers, et cetera. Of course. And so how did they find you and learn that you were going through this? Because we belonged to the Gay Teachers Association. We were active immediately in organizations. And there were organizations that were starting things like this. The Gay Teachers Organization wanted to have their mates, there weren't mates yet, their partners on their health plan. But they needed people who would really go into it So there were three couples, and that's what we did. And so what was the general reaction to this lawsuit? Like, did did people think that you were crazy for, like, even asking for equal benefits like this? Nobody said anything. You have to remember that I was very well liked in the school. I was an excellent teacher, guidance counselor, friend, etc. Had wonderful ideas that were out of the box. And so... It was really respected. It was more or less something, if Ruth's doing it, it's okay. And I'm sure the people who were against it were silent, but that's the way it is. In fact, one religious teacher, Orthodox Jewish guy came, he said, it's not something I believe in, but I wish you luck. Wow. Yeah. The other two couples wanted to be anonymous. We didn't care. And that's how it started in the newspaper and what's his name? Mike Douglas. What was the TV show? Donahue, the Phil Donahue show. Yeah. During a commercial, Donahue would come over and say to me, Ruth, the audience is also part of the show. Stop interrupting them. And I actually brought a clip from that appearance. So this is the Phil Donahue show from 1988. You really are manifesting a prejudice against these people. You are telling them to shut up. 
Now this, yes, you are. shut me up because silence no, equals I just, death. I just think, I just You think better go and find out why I upset you so much because I make love to her. We feel live and let live, that's fine. My question is. No, you is don't think live and let live. For the men. The laws are against me. We can't get married. Don't say live and let live. I refuse to keep quiet. I love that clip because it sounds like you were ferocious and you had to be ferocious to be on there. You know why? Millions of people around the country were going to see this. They had to hear the truth. They had to hear what we are going through. So did my community of LGBTQ people. They had to hear that we could speak up, speak out, we deserve. That was important to me. And the reason that I came out, Connie wanted me to come out. Once she said to me, she said the following sentence, Ruth, you're not respecting the relationship. That was it. I was out. Well, she was right. That was more important than if people pointed a finger at me or whatever it would be. Just before we move off of the lawsuit, you ultimately won that in 94. Dinkins, who was the mayor at the time, went for domestic partnership for all city employees. That's what the end result was. It was for straight people. So every time I was at a meeting or whatever, I would say, because they would mention that they had domestic partnership, I said, you have to thank me and Connie, lesbians, for getting the domestic partnership for you straight people. Once domestic came, straight people could do the same thing. Oh, so this was something that affected everybody, not just gay people. Yes. Was that the goal from the beginning? Not that they knew, no, no. In fact, the lawyers that we had from Lambda Legal Defense, they were all volunteers, you know, not getting paid. At the end of our first meeting, knowing what would happen, they said, oh, we don't, Connie said, why aren't you going for marriage? Why do you go? Why are you just going for domestic partnership? Why don't we go for marriage? And they said, we don't think we'll get this. So the six of us, the three couples at the end of the meeting got together and said, we're going to get this. We're going to work for getting this. And we will. Took a few years, but it was really the beginning all over. We were opening up all over the states for things like this. And you got together with Connie. I believe you were 40 years old. Was that right? I was 40 at the time. Yes. And so let's just like pretend for a second that Connie was not a part of your story, not in the equation. Do you think like about if or when you might have like found your way out of the closet without her being there? No. Had no interest. It was all about Connie. Yeah. And so, as we said, this was in like the mid-70s when he first got together. How aware were you of the gay community in New York City? In coming out, we knew that we had to get to the community. So every night we stayed out for over a year and went to every meeting, every gathering, every bar, every, every in New York City. We didn't know a lesbian. We knew very little about the history of life or whatever. I knew it was bad. People were in the closet. Laws were against us, et cetera, et cetera, and how we were treated. So we... We went out there. It's just funny that across the bridge in like 1969, you know, Stonewall happened. And then just a few years later in your own personal life, like you had your own personal Stonewall. Yes, but it wasn't a stone wall; It was a soft wall. 
that soft wall for you. I know it was not an easy process, but it is incredibly special that you did have another person next to you to go through it with. Yes, very important. Because she pushed me. She was out. She thought out was the way you should be. That's it. Coming out. That's it. Be who you are. And so finally meeting other gay people, as you said, were there things that you like learned that surprised you about like the gay community back then? It wasn't so much a surprise as a sadness of how poorly they were treated when they came out by their families, how alone so many of them were, how, you know, being together so long and not having children, you know, not being accepted in community, always watching themselves, not having a picture of the one they loved on their desk when they were working. I mean, it was it was difficult. Those difficult things you named, were they understood back then just to be kind of like the norm? Like being kicked out of your home or not being accepted by your parents? Did that feel like that was just the way gay life was? Yes. And that has a lot to do with shame, embarrassment, because we so focus in on the sexual and not the person. And it's beyond, it isn't just the sexual. It's the person. And I applaud in many ways the way gay men bounce around with each other and accept that. And do you know that's why straight men don't like you? You know why they have a thing with you? Why is that? I'm going to use the word. You can fuck around and it's okay. They have a freedom. Straight men really can't do that unless they're going to pay for it. They got to take her out. They got to buy her presents. They got to marry her or go to a prostitute at that time. And so you admired that about gay men. Yeah. Did you ever crave that freedom as a gay woman? Not really. Not really. I, I, if, I, if I wanted to, I think I could. Yeah. I think yeah, there is some of it in the lesbian community, but we don't know very much because they're even more silent. The lesbians are much more silent. Because they still are women, and they know that women are secondary citizens in this country. Everywhere, really. I mean, while we're talking about sex, how did having sex with Connie the first time compare to the sex you'd had previously in your life? Oh, it was it was overwhelming because it wasn't only orgasmic, it was in every part of my body. It was extraordinary. Did that passion exist throughout your marriage? Yes. Yes. You're smiling big. <laughs> because we really, there was a connection that was extraordinary. It wasn't only a, a loving connection. It was a political connection. It was a private connection. It was knowing each other's families. It was knowing our, our history of growing up and everything that we had gone through. We knew each other, even if issues came up. I'll tell you a funny story. I was the one when we were having a fight that I left, got in the car, went to a supermarket, whatever, came back. Everything was cool. One night I'm in bed and we have this big bang up argument and she leaves, goes down to the car and where our bedroom was, was where our car was also parked downstairs. And I could hear her start the car and all of a sudden I don't hear the car anymore, but I hear her walking up the steps and she's hysterical laughing. 
The first time she was doing this, she gets into the car and there's a flat tire. <laughs> so she couldn't go. How have you been doing now that Connie's passed away in uh, 2018? Right. Lousy. Lousy. I have pictures of her. And it, I don't know if you could see any pictures behind me. She was an artist also. And I have a picture of her with hundreds of pennies, nickels, dimes, dollars, because we were both poor kids in Brooklyn. And we would walk in the street. And if there was any money in the street, we would pick it up. And I'd say, it's a message from the goddess. All will be well. When she passed away, I started finding money when I was thinking of her. Wow. It's wild, isn't it? But I know it's, oh, I was in Manhattan. I go to Manhattan to visit my daughter. And I told my daughter, you have to go home. It's going to snow. Bring me here. I want to go get soup. And as I'm walking, do you know Manhattan? I do. All right. 14th Street, 8th Avenue. Is it crowded? They have that place where you go in. Okay. Yes. People are in front of me, behind me, on the side of me. And all of a sudden, I see a dollar bill floating down and I knew it was her from the sky. A dollar bill is coming from the sky. It goes between my legs. I said, if I pick it up, I'm going to get kicked in the ass. <laughs> but I said, it's from Connie. I'll pick it up. And every night I say goodnight to her. I have no interest in anyone else. I'm an old lady. Who's interested? I mean, when was the last time you saw a woman and thought like, damn, she's hot? Not interested. I could say, damn, she's hot, but I don't experience anything in the way I would if I really were interested, I'm not interested. You know why? It's too hard. It isn't just it isn't just going to bed or sex. There's conversation, there's family, there's interference, there's politics. There's too much. I don't want it. Do you miss sex? I can take care of myself. I do. I think that's healthy. It's healthy. <laughs> Very healthy. That's why I do it. Tell me this, is this the first time you've lived alone in your life? Oh, yes. What has that been like? That's that's very difficult. Very difficult. I can sleep, but being alone is difficult because we talked a lot about everything. It didn't matter, whatever. If she were watching a TV show and I came home from shopping, we would talk about the music that was on the TV show. It was extraordinary, the relationship. It wasn't to say that there were days we had such fights, we want to say goodbye, but we would begin to laugh when we thought about that. Do you find yourself, you know, talking to her when you're alone in your apartment? All the time, every night, every day, every time I need to. I have pictures all over. I have pictures in the car. I have pictures in the, I have pictures all over of her. What has surprised you the most about grief and grieving? Hmm. That's a good question because I belong to two grief groups. One is the lesbian widows and the other is straight people from a synagogue. You don't have to be Jewish. It's just the synagogue's paying for it. Sometimes I don't agree that it's a process because the grief is there with the loss, period. What you do with it what you do with your life, how you handle it, you know, how you take care of yourself. There was a, there was, there's been times where I would like to say goodbye. I'm done. You know. Are you, are you saying say goodbye to like your life? Yeah, that it's okay. When I go, it's fine. Because I believe in, I'm using the word hereafter, 
we don't know enough about it not to know that we may meet. Not in the same way, not in the thing, but who knows? We don't know. And it's like such a secret. We don't deal with death very easily. We don't deal with aging here. Aging is like, you know, put aside. The least people our government takes care of are the elders and the youth. Our education system, and I was in it, sucks. I did my best as a guidance counselor, administrator, teacher, to bring it up to a level that was healthy for kids. I did things so against the rules, you have no idea. I took a chance. People may not like it, but it helped kids. Uh, like, give me an example of one thing. Trying to think. Sure. This is a tough one. Maybe you'll cut it out. After a while, in this particular school, I was the dean of girls. Boys and girls were separated in, in, that, in those years, the 70s, the 80s. And a young woman who was in my health class, very smart, very lovely, she comes, she wants to talk to me as the dean of girls. She says that she's pregnant and they have decided that she wants an abortion because she's accepted to college, etc. She cannot tell her parents. They would force her to keep the baby. It will ruin her life. She said the boy, the young man would, would participate. He would pay for it if it had to be paid for, etc. because their lives would be destroyed. So I said, okay, uh, let me see what the story is and whatever. I didn't go into why didn't you use contraception and, 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 and you know, that bullshit. She left. I looked at her grades. I checked out everything. My aunt, my mother's sister, was head of clerks at Coney Island Hospital. I didn't know if she's telling me the truth that she's pregnant. How do I know? I called her up. I said, Sue, I said, I want to bring in a, a student with a boyfriend, and I'm going to bring in a colleague of mine. Somebody has to go with me also. Not going to do it alone if she's pregnant. I said, but after the pregnancy test, you want to destroy the whole identification. It's not to be in any of the, any place. She said, fine. We go, she's pregnant. And I call them together to find out, are they sure they want this abortion? I arrange with my aunt for the abortion. Again, everything to be thrown out, not any. And we went. My friend and I, we went. We, I was nervous, very nervous. Woo. And uh, nobody knew. Nobody knows until now. I did it with three young women, all past the age of 18, all able to make their own decisions, all healthy. Did you ever hear from any of the girls again? Oh, about five or six years later, I'm already in a different school and I'm in a different place. There's a knock on the door at our home and there's one of the young women. And she says, I knew you lived here. She says, I'm here because I live five blocks away. I'd like you to walk with me to my home and meet my two sons. It never would have happened if you didn't do what you, you didn't help me. Now, people could think, oh, that's terrible. Bah, 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 bah. I thought about it. I would not go for an abortion personally. But being held back in their lives, if they did that, was not fair. They were smart. They had goals, etc. was not an easy thing to do. I took a big risk, but I've taken a lot of risks. 
It's amazing that they felt comfortable enough even asking you. Yeah, I was open. I was open. Helped a lot of kids in very different ways outside of the general school situation. You know, in just a few short weeks, you are turning 89 years old. 88. Oh, 88. Sorry. 30. Sorry. Sorry. Easy. Easy. It's still a shock to me. I have a group of friends. When we were kids in elementary school, we're still friends. Some of us, some of them have passed away, but we connect and we can't believe we're 88 and 89. But there's a but. I deserve better in my golden years than what I have now. The world sucks. America is in its worst place from my history that it's ever been. And I'm concerned about my community, my three communities, okay? I am triple. I'm an old lady, I'm a Jew, and I'm a lesbian. Three strikes against me right away. I mean, as you said, like, we ignore the oldest members of our community. Is there something that you wish we knew or paid more attention to? Well, you probably know a lot of our elders have no family. Their money is very, very sparse. There's little community that pays attention to them. And it's difficult. My community has helped America grow. LGBT people the work that they do, the careers that they have, have helped America grow and they're treated like shit. We should not have to be in the closet. We should be very proud. I'm proud of my community. And that, that, that I learned by meeting people across the country and what they were doing with their lives. I'm a spokesperson, I know. And I put myself into a lot of straight situations in order to speak up and speak out. I think that is so important. And I really appreciate you speaking today with us. So Ruthie, thank you so much for doing this. You made it very easy, thank you. The only question I have is how come I didn't have a hairdresser and a makeup person? Well, it's because we are only recording the audio. (laughs) Is that a good reason? (laughs) That's a good reason. (laughs) And that was Ruthie Berman. I should note too that the documentary film that she referenced a couple times is called Ruthie and Connie, Every Room in the House. And I think it's a rather beautiful depiction of their relationship. So that is streaming if you wanna check it out. And I've also included a link in the show notes here. And then in the interview, we played part of that clip of Ruthie and Connie on the Phil Donahue show. And I posted the full clip this morning to my Instagram and Twitter accounts. So I'm on there at JeffMasters1 if you want to come and see them in action. That's JeffMasters1 on Instagram and Twitter. Then next week on our LGBTQ plus elders project, we're continuing with a titan of trans history. And that is Jameson Green. I had to figure out how I fit. All that struggle prior to my transition was all about how do I fit into the world? Because people can't see me, because people misinterpret me, because people aren't conscious of my experience. Well, nobody's conscious of anybody else's experience. You can't demand that. But when you're young, I think a lot of times that is what you want. And life is a spiritual quest, but we don't always recognize every aspect of life as spiritual in our busy, busy world. 
Jamison Green is a trans man who has been at the forefront of writing about transgender health policy. His writing has been used to lay the groundwork for transgender anti-discrimination practices across the U.S., so that comes out next Tuesday. Until then, we are brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week.